Welcome to tonight's Saturday Night Special, episode 186. I'm Brian Slade. I challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your true calling. Having the ability to recognize what you do have control of and how it can help you deal with trauma is key. And one way to one way to remain inspired is to listen to this podcast with Scott Maynard. And one of those things was the belief in a higher cause, right? Belief, being having a belief in something greater than us that's out there looking out for us. It's really, it's a lot easier to digest that everything happens for us, not to us. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In tonight's Saturday Night Special, I interview Brian Slade. I asked Brian to share with you his journey to writing Cleared Hot and how faith played a part in that journey. I also asked Brian about his how his relationships were affected by his deployment and some of the things he learned from that. And Brian shares what you can do to have a prepared mind and how that can help you deal with the trauma that we all face. One reason I like to bring you great interviews like the one you're going to hear today is because of the power in learning from others. Another great way to learn from others is through reading books. But if you're like most people today, you find it hard to find the time to sit down and read. And that's why today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to inspiredstewardship.com audible to sign up and you can get a 30-day free trial. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from, and instead of reading, you can listen your way to learn from some of the greatest minds out there. That's inspiredstewardship.com audible to get your free trial and listen to great books the same way you're listening to this podcast. Brian Slade has held command positions in the Army and the Air Force and received the Distinguished Flying Cross, Bronze Star, and 14 Combat Air Medals. He attended Utah State, where he earned a B.A. and was commissioned as an Army Aviation Second Lieutenant. He's also earned an M.A. in Aviation Instruction. Bryant currently serves as a Lieutenant Colonel for the Air Force Combat Search and Rescue. And Brian recently released his book, Cleared Hot, Lessons Learned About Life, Love, and Leadership While Flying the Apache Gunship in Afghanistan and Why I Believe a Prepared Mind Can Prevent PTSD. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I talked a little bit about your book, Cleared Hot, in the intro, but and your story, but let's back up a little bit and unpack that journey a little bit more. What brought you to actually want to put this book out into the world? A lot. There's a lot of factors, but I would say the most pivotal moment or the thing that really hit me was at one point. Eight years after, eight years after the deployment that this book chronicles, 
through a cascade of crazy events and leadership actually looking out for somebody that they didn't have to look out. That's a whole other story. But I ended up in the middle of a Utah Jazz basketball court at halftime with Senator Orrin Hatch presenting a distinguished flying cross to me. And so we'd been there for the first half and the Jazz had actually been winning. And so they'd been cheering. I've been pretty loud. And as I walked out there with him and they started to read the citation, it was deafening. And it was it was just it was very overwhelming in a way. And at that point I realized I'm like, look, they don't know who I am. They don't know anything. That this isn't for me. This is for what I represent. And what I represent to them is something that some I mean for a lot of different things for different people. But what they don't understand is all the background and yeah, this is one citation for one event and but there's a lot of events and there's a lot of learning that came from those events and and for me, they were what people would categorize as traumatic events. And they were traumatic events. But for me, they actually became foundational to what I would call a better version of myself. And so at that moment, when I saw all those people and I was like, these moments, these incidents downrange have that kind of power, that kind of impact to affect this many people with the lessons that I learned could be pay that forward, right? If it all happened just to benefit me, that seems ridiculous, right? And I didn't know book at the time. I didn't know, hey, I needed a book. I'm going to write a book. But I was like, I need to do something. I need to do something with these experiences. What? So what made you actually decide that a book was the right? Really just mulling it over in my head. And I'll be honest, my whole life, people are like, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. Because if you when if you do read the book, at the very beginning, I do a little bit of background with where I came from. what I, And I just had crazy experiences. It's just, I'm a magnet for it. I don't know why, but it, it just is. I put a couple of them in the, of back in the day, but really there'd be a, an entertaining book of just my teenage years. It would be very entertaining, but I didn't feel that there were lessons. There's always lessons, but I didn't feel that they were as impactful as per se that the engagements with the Taliban and those type of life or death situations that, that carried with them very impactful lessons. So People have been saying, write a book my whole life. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to write that. That's crazy. I mean, that, yeah, for somebody to laugh and have be entertained, not a driver for me. But when I really saw that, yeah, crazy, entertaining, definitely there, but also life lessons that can turn people's lives around or help people with the traumas that they're dealing with, or even just have people like feel connected to a story that they can relate to with a lot of the vets that are out there, or first responders. And what I really, we tried, the goal was to write it in a way that anybody could relate to it. You didn't have to be military because trauma is trauma. Pain is pain. And Mm -hmm. how that chemical process happens inside of us is very similar to, to, irregardless, (laughs) I know that's not a word, irregardlessly. It is now. And I'm really happy because I use it all the time, but it's actually now in the dictionary. Yes, they actually added it. They finally gave up. <laughs> even if you put Lee, even if you put Lee at the end, irregardless Lee, is it still? No, irregardless Lee is not. <laughs> irregardless. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, I was really happy when I learned that last year. I was like, woohoo, because I use it all the time too. <laughs> but yeah, so basically the steps and the learning applies to almost everybody because we all have significant events in our life, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I, at the very beginning of the book, I say, this is a story about my Afghanistan. And I'm going to explain, I'm going to explain lessons learned through the traumatic events 
in my Afghanistan, but you have your own Afghanistan. I, whatever that is, you have an Afghanistan. The lessons can be applied. So yeah, it was really the book idea was put in by a bunch of people. Finally, I was like, okay, that makes sense now. So when you think about it, so we've had a lot of different people on talking about trauma in different ways. And think at, at first glance, I think a lot of times people hear that and think about trauma and my brand is inspired stewardship. I talk about stewardship and faith and these different topics like that. And it's like, wait, why do you then want to talk about trauma? <laughs> because at first glance, it's like those aren't connected. But you talk in the book about how some of your faith journey and your personal journey, how that kind of helped you in ways while you were dealing with the trauma and the events that you were being exposed to. What do you see as that intersection and that connection between your faith, your beliefs, your journey there and trauma and how you responded to it while you were there in Afghanistan? I love the question. I'll have to back up a little bit on it is when I first came back, I didn't really understand why I had experienced what I would call growth from these events where others, you have the whole gambit. You have those that are stronger and better because of it. And then you have all the way to the other end where people are willing to take their lives from the same event, same events, same type of events. So same stimulus, completely different reaction. And so that's really what stirred my mind. Okay, there's something here. I got to dig into this. And I went and I started talking to all the people that have glasses and PhDs and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, look, what's up here? Why do I feel strong? I'm not happy about a lot of the stuff that I had, was, got exposed right. to, but it is part of what makes me, it is foundational. It's not an obstacle. And why is that? And so they said, well, let's dig into it. Let's dig into some of the things that you were doing. And so we got into what my daily ritual was downrange and before and what my background was. And, and so there's things you can't teach. Like I can't teach the value of the strength that you garner from having a healthy family upbringing like that. You either have that or you don't. But it isn't something that you can't overcome, regardless of what you, regardless of what, what the circumstances were. But what we did distill were several things I was doing, unbeknownst to me, that were actually helpful in seeing an event or experiencing an event, and how I digested that event as, as a, like I say, foundational instead of a trial or an obstacle. And one of those things was belief in a higher cause, right? Belief. Being having a belief in something greater than us that's out there looking out for us, it's really it's a lot easier to digest that everything happens for us, not to us, right? And so if you don't if you don't believe that, that's a harder that's a harder leap, that's a harder stretch to say it happens for me. But if you believe there is a a, a larger power that that has our best interests at heart, or heart or whatever you believe, right? It gives you an empowered perspective. Things happen for you. Like we, we, this must have happened for a reason. Maybe I don't understand the reason. There's got to be a reason. And we see it all the time. People are like, oh, this grew up in this terrible, came from this terrible background, had this happen. Had, and despite all odds, they became this amazing person. And I say baloney. It didn't happen despite all odds. It happened because of those odds. Those things that he had to over, he or she had to overcome, the things that happened to them made, they just learned how to digest those and see those as opportunities instead of obstacles. And I say that tri trials, trauma, obstacles, 
They're all opportunity just cleverly disguised. And it's easier to believe that when you know that somebody's looking out for you. It's not happening to you. It's not punitive. It's for you. It's and hard on some things. Absolutely. <laughs> like there's so a woman backed over her kid. I've talked to a woman who backed over a kid and she said, that happened for me. And I was like, yeah, I know you don't want me to say that, but is it a tragedy? Of course. Is it heartbreaking? Of course. Now let's say, what can we get from that experience? We don't relish that it happened. You don't need to do that. You don't need to be like, I'm so happy that happened. I'm not happy that I had to do certain things downrange. I'm not happy that I had to blow people up. I'm not happy I had to see certain things that would be part of certain things that I was. But or I'm great friends or all of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm grateful for what it taught me. Right. I'm grateful for that aspect. I'm not necessarily grateful. It's weird. I'm not happy it happened, but I am grateful it happened, if right. that makes any sense. Yeah. No, I, I think it does. And it's so they talk a lot. You hear, I'll finish one of these sentences, I promise. You hear about <laughs> post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and people coming back with that. And then there is actually a field of study about post-traumatic growth, which is what you're talking about. The idea of sometimes that trauma can make some people grow after it and some people can have stress disorder. In both cases, it's not like the stress part isn't there. And it's right. not like the trauma part's not there. The trauma's there. The stress is there. It's that response to it that's different. And what you're saying is there's some factors that lead to a response that's positive that are just, again, like you said, you grew up in a stable household. That's a plus. <laughs> yeah, that's a, That goes in the plus column. You grew up in a less stable household. That goes in the minus column. But there are other things that you can actually do and take action on to help you both recover or set yourself up so that when you do have those stress events, you respond in a more positive way, right? Yes, 100%. And I was doing a lot of these things without even realizing it. One of them was that I had a, that belief. That was just something I had mm -hmm. already. So it wasn't like I had, I did nightly prayer. I, I don't even say it's nightly prayer. I did my, I just have conversations with the big guy. That's what I do. Like, I'll just talk out loud. I believe that he's listening. And then there's times where I know he's saying stuff to me too. And, mm -hmm. and it's not a voice. I don't like, I'm not saying, oh, I see angels or anything like that. I don't get a voice. I know people who say they have, and I don't discard that. I, maybe they do get a voice. Um, I never, I've never gotten a voice. I've definitely gotten strong feelings. I share an event. I share a story. It's called Fireflies On. It's one of the chapters in the book. And it's really about that and the power of that because we were in a dark, dark valley in the middle of the uh, armpit dark is what I call it, right? You're stuck in an armpit. And <clears throat> I've heard that described other ways, but we'll go with armpit. <laughs> Please. I, this, is, this is a family show. So yes. So uh, armpit dark's what I go with. And so you go, we go into this valley and when it's dark like that, the one advantage is that you can see the muzzle flash. You can see the tracer fire. You can see it very clearly because it's juxtaposed blackness, right? And so I see the fight. I can see two sides. I can see blasts. I can see muzzle. I can see a uh, tracer going both ways, which at that point, if this was in the Hindu Kush in the northern Afghanistan, the Taliban fighters up there in the north typically didn't have tracer fire. Sometimes, some, but not, but typically not. Like down south, they use it a lot, but up north, very rarely. 
So that's one thing that maybe stood out in my subconscious. But but when I drove into this fight, I talked to the ground commander and I was like, look, I need you to verify your position so I know I can see the fight. I need you to verify your position so that I know the other position is the bad guys. Can you turn a firefly on? A firefly is just a little IR strobe that most of the ground guys have on their helmets or somewhere and they hit, click it and it starts flashing. We can see it under the goggles, night vision goggles. So he turns his on. Boom. I got it. Yep. Got your firefly. Now just to, for added, we call it personal identification or PID. Man, I can't even. Yeah. Identify, identifying the enemy to make sure that we're fitting the rules of engagement. You have a laser on you. He's like, yes, I do. I said, like, can you rope the enemy? Because I'm pretty sure it's the, the hill above you. Like his position was lower and then the position that was firing was higher on a little plateau thing. And uh, yeah, so he points up there, he ropes it, basically spins a little circle with a laser. That's what they call roping it. And I'm like, okay, this is easy. I got him. I got the bad guys. We're ready to go. He said, you're cleared hot, which is the name of the book, right? We're cleared to engage. So we roll in. I tell my wingman, we'll come in first. I'll hit it. You guys hit it. This is going to be a pretty simple, straightforward engagement. The biggest difficulty was the terrain. So as we came around, I lined up and I had it in my crosshairs. I was starting to put pressure on the trigger. And here's the deal. With certain weapon systems on that Apache, if it's in the crosshairs and you're in those certain parameters right there, I wasn't going to miss. I would not miss. I would hit what I was aiming at. Guarantee it. And I had this really strong feeling, do not shoot. And there wasn't a voice. It was just a really strong feeling, do not shoot. Now, there was nothing in that scenario that says don't shoot. I had a ground guy. I had positive communication. I had a laser roped on it. I had both locations separated, but something inside of me or coming from outside of me is what I would like to say, said don't shoot. So I released this the trigger. I said ceasefire, break contact, don't engage to my number two. Called ceasefire on basically everybody, and I to and, and my wingman said, "What's up?" And I was like, "I don't know. Something's not right. I don't know. I don't have. I don't have a tangible. I can't give you a reason, <laughs> right?" And so what we did is we started talking to the ground commander a little bit more. He's like, "Why didn't you shoot?" Blah blah blah. I'm like, "Here's the deal. Do you have any other friendlies in the area?" He's like, "Yeah, we got another patrol." on the other side of the valley. So, okay, can you communicate with them and have them turn their fireflies on? He said, sure. So he does on his radio freak. I don't hear it. I go out over common air to ground and say, any friendlies in the vicinity of this grid zone with Apaches overhead, please turn on your fireflies. We look to where he says his patrol is and we see nothing. And then we roll back to that knoll that we were about to blow up and it is lit up like a Christmas tree. It was friendly fire engaging each other and i told him i was like dude where you guys have been shooting has fireflies all over it and he gets a little bit cease fire cease fire i'm like we're on right. everything ceased <laughs> yeah. we're good but they had been shooting at each other they'd been shooting at each other and we would have killed them yeah we would have killed 12 to 15 yeah, the, the weapons that you were bringing in would have no, there would have been made a mess out of the situation. There wouldn't have been anyone left alive. What I put it in the book is there wouldn't be enough parts to fill up the casket. And that's true because that weapon system would have disintegrated them. Mm -hmm. And okay, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that I had that feeling. But let's take that. Let's play that forward. Say I didn't do it. 
say I, I, I pulled the trigger. I didn't get that feeling. I pulled the trigger. That happened. There's that still happens for me. There's still something to learn there. Now that would have been a lesson that I would not be grateful. That'd be a traumatic for. event for sure. <laughs> I would not be grateful for that. It happened. And I mean, I'd not be happy that it happened, but I would have to really struggle to find the, the lesson because wow, that would have been, that would have been tough. But I really believe everything happens for us, not to us, even if it went the other way. I'm grateful. It didn't. I'm so Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. You're happy. It didn't <laughs> you'd be, but even if it did, you'd still have to find the lesson from it that you could be. Yeah. That would be a hard for. one to recover from. Uh, it would be a hard one, but it's doable. It's definitely doable. Things like that have happened to people and they do have a growth from it. Right. Mm -hmm. That would have been really hard for me because I was sick for a day and a half just at the thought of it. Sick to my stomach. I almost puked when I, I had pressure. It was like half squeezed. That's, you that's could have, you were mere hairs away from it have been the other way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you still to this day don't really know from a again, logically, because you said at the beginning, you saw the tracer fire and okay, maybe subconsciously you're going, oh, that's a little weird. But other than that, <laughs> there wasn't like anything that stood out as the real reason other than that feeling that you got from outside that you yeah. do believe is from, again, a higher power, some, your own faith. You ascribe that to the, to God, the universe, karma, whatever name you want to give it that comes in from outside and says, Hey, wait, no, don't well, do it. For me at that night, I kneeled down and thank God. I said, thank you for guiding my hand and saying it, sorry, saying it powerful enough that I did it. The fog didn't, the fog didn't overwhelm it. So during, during the book, you talk a little bit about being married while you were deployed as well. How do you think that affected your mindset and what was going on during your deployment? It's a very large part of the book is I was married to someone who later we found out was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of strain on our relationship. There was a lot of difficult interaction and often it was harder for me to deal with that trauma than engaging the enemy, right? Harder because I didn't, I don't know if it's because I had more training to deal with the enemy. Nobody sat me down and said, this is how you deal in a relationship with somebody who has a mental disorder. I just didn't, I didn't know what to do. I felt helpless a lot. And, uh, and it was a, I definitely had to compartmentalize. I had to have like, two different lives or basically, mm -hmm. and that one was a strain for sure. And I, I say in the book, like, why is it often easier to navigate the dynamics of a, an enemy who's trying to kill me and in kind return the favor than it is to navigate the dynamics of a unhealthy relationship. And, uh, and I, to this day, I have, I got more damage. I use PTSD. I, I put damage because I think it can be reversed. Right. So. I have more, I had more damage from that than any of the stuff. So that really brings it home to people. How many people can relate to a bad relationship? How many people can relate to an abusive situation? How many people can relate to with substance abuse? How many people can relate to, can relate to that? And those, and I'm just, and I'm here to tell you, I've experienced that and the extremes of war. And that was more powerful for me, for me. And in some ways is for a lot of people, I think, probably.
And so the, some people will be like, oh, I've experienced trauma, but nothing like you guys. I don't know. I don't know. It's just different. What do you think? So some of the things you talk about in the book that you were doing in your deployment to help you deal with trauma, and one of them we've already talked about, faith in a higher power, and we'll talk later about some of the other ones, but do you think it was that you were able to do things proactively in the deployment that you weren't either able to do or weren't doing? I don't know in the relationship trauma. I think it was, there was a very, there were things that I had in my daily ritual that were set up to prepare me for what I was doing with my mission. Right. Mm -hmm. And they just happened to fall in the tumblers happened to fall in the right, right spot to be like, that's a good setup. That's a good, that you're kind of naturally doing things that if a psychologist had come to you and said, here's things to do, they would have lined up. When I, that's what we found out. They're like, well, you were doing that. Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's a really healthy. That's a really, <laughs> and I was like, but I wasn't really doing that necessarily with the relationship. Cause I didn't see, I didn't see the psychological benefit to it. I was doing it to stay alive. And there was no fear of physical death from my relationship. And so there, I wasn't applying the same lessons across. And I did have better training. Like I had better oh, yeah. training for that experience. And as I don't know if we said this on record recording or not, but I was also poisoned with testosterone. You you don't share that stuff. You just, you tuck that down deep and you, you just deal with that yourself. Right. So mm-hmm. nobody needs to know that. And that's covering a wound that's infected and hoping that it heals. Just not going to, it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. So you were, again, I think that's important to recognize you were, you were doing things, not necessarily intentionally a hundred percent, but things that you were trained to do. And then things that you naturally learned to do because they worked. And so you kept doing them over here and then, but over there with the relationship, because again, I think from a wider perspective, I think there's probably folks listening that have trauma in one part of their life that they've dealt with well and trauma in another part that is causing them problems. Oh, I, it. I think that's part of what we need to realize from this is sometimes it's your, your approach to the trauma as much as it is the traumas. And it sounds like you've done work after the fact, because, you know, you're, I know you're no longer in that relationship with working on dealing with and processing it because you're able to talk about it now very openly and honestly, as opposed to then, like you said, you wanted to push it down and hide it. So what are some of the things you've done since then to help recover from the relationship trauma? One of the principles that we did teach us to is abbreviate the wound, abbreviate the wound, meaning I just talked about it. Tucking it down is basically covering up an infected wound. You, you have to get to a point where you can just, it is just part of your, it's like what happened on Wednesday. It's what happened. You know, I'm just telling you what, what happened on my way to work because it is part of what makes me me. Right. And a lot of times we fight with this. What do people think? Or what did it, if they knew, if people knew, here's the truth of the matter. I don't think people care that much. Right. They might, and they might think, but so what? It's so much healthier for you. That's like drinking poison and hoping somebody else dies. It's just not, doesn't make any sense. But when we're in that, we don't see it that clearly. We don't see it like, oh, this is just dumb. 
but I did I realize that with the war stuff. I realized I've always talked about it openly and I didn't have anything residual pain from it. Yeah, things that, oh, that sucked. Or, but it was, I couldn't even talk. I could always talk about that because I always did. And there was one point where I that clicked and I was like, that should be true in all aspects of your life, right? Not that you go out and share it with the world, but that you're just willing to. You're willing to, if I'm in a conversation where it applies to help somebody, where I've had this experience that applies to help you, it shouldn't be like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to share that. You know, it should, hey, you know what? This is something that, that I dealt with. And this is how I dealt with it. Doesn't mean it's going to work for you, but maybe here's something there, right? If it's something that you struggle to talk about and when it's in the right atmosphere, then it's probably not dealt with healthy in a healthy way. You probably haven't compartmentalized or filed it where it needs to be filed. Yeah. Longtime listeners of the show know, as an example, I openly will say I grew up, my father was an alcoholic. I grew up in an alcoholic household. There was a long time that you, I just, I, you don't admit that because you hide that. That's not something that you talk about because that's how I was raised was you don't talk about that. <laughs> and that was dad's expectation. That was the family expectation. That was the rule. You follow the rule. Yeah. So it wasn't until many years later that I'm able to just go, I, I still love my dad and there's things about him. I admire greatly and stuff, lessons I've learned from him that are tremendous and then there's things that he did and said and acted on and that I don't admire and that were negative, but it took a long time to get to a point where I could say, here's the things about dad that I loved. And here's the things that, that I wish weren't true, but they are. And I have no problem admitting that he was an alcoholic. And I think yeah, you that's can, a, you're right. That's a hard place to get sometimes. Yeah. You can love and accept the person, but you don't have to love and accept everything that they do. Every behavior they've had. Yeah. yeah. You accept them for who they are. And we all have our own stuff and we all deal with it in different ways. And quite honestly, human tendency is to deal with stuff in not so healthy ways. I, we lean towards alcohol. We lean towards other coping mechanisms. There, there are healthy coping mechanisms, but it doesn't seem like most of us, there are some that naturally, oh, I'm going to go work out. <laughs> All right. Mm -hmm. Good for you. You didn't go to the bottle. So, And again, yeah, you see that with folks coming back from, from deployment too, that they've learned to deal with it with drugs or alcohol as opposed mm -hmm. to other things, that same sort of thing. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about, so I know you outline a bunch of different things and I love the fact that your book is more, it's not, as, it's not quote theory. <laughs> it's here's actions, here's things you can do. Here's processes and activities that you can do. And one of the ones that you talk about in the book is what you call chair flying and helicopter pilot chair flying. So what was that for you back during the deployment and how did it help you deal with trauma? And then how does that apply both today and to the wider, to everybody else when they, because they may not be really quote, flying a helicopter in real life. They may be doing something else. Yeah. So chair flying is something that you learn in flight school, the visualization tool where they're like, look, you're only going to get so many iterations to do this maneuver and you're not going to get proficient with that many iterations, but you can run a hundred of these iterations in your head and actually move your body with it and walk through it and start to connect those neural pathways so that you get smoother when you actually do the maneuver. So it's something that we learn in flight school. And I actually had what you call 
there's precautionary landings where you have emergencies. <laughs> I actually was called the PL King in flight school. I had four, <laughs> I think 14 or 15 of, I can't remember the number of real world emergencies. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to take this stuff serious. And the middle then, note, don't fly with Brian. Got it. Okay. <laughs> or if you want a good time. For or, it, yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe you fly with Brian every time. You're right. Cause yeah. I'm still here. You so, can look at it both ways. You're right. Glass half full. Anyway, the, that came, that transitioned over to the war. I got into more fights than anybody. And I just, I was in, in that kind of stuff. And, and they made me an aircraft commander probably earlier than my capability dictated, right? It was just needs of the army. And I was like, oh, great. I'm in, now I'm the guy. I'm in charge of this thing. So I really amped up my chair flying. I took it to another degree than what they didn't teach. I, and this is how I explain it to people. It's I basically took meditation, visualization, and role-playing and how to make a love child. And that's my version of chair flying, right? And so the first thing I do is meditation, which is everybody's meditation is unique. I do breathing exercises, right? Mm -hmm. That's That gets, I call it fertilizing your garden because you're about to plant some stuff that you want to take root, right? I'm going to plant some things in there that I want to stick. So I want to, control my mind, my, my, my space, understand that I'm in control of all that's about to happen so that there's not any anxiety. I never really dealt with anxiety too much, but I know a lot of people do. So this will help reduce anxiety when you're going to picture, walk yourself through a stressful situation. And what I tell people is if you do start to go to the visualization piece, which is next, and you're visualizing this thing and you start to get, feel that anxiety building, go right back to the meditation, go right back to that piece get back to right, and then push from the start again and go a little further than you did the last time. And as far as you can, but at least a little further than you did the last time. So the visualization piece is, I'll tell a story. When we were engaging an enemy and it was dark again, it seems like it was always dark, right? We we're engaging the enemy. And I have in the Apache, you have what's called the helmet display unit, which is a monocle over your right eye. And you have a forward looking infrared so your picture is just on your right eye. That's all you have. And, and there's symbology in there for flying and weapon systems. It's all in that right eye. Your left eye is looking out at the dark abyss. You can see the instruments inside, but when it's dark, you just see darkness outside. So we're getting ready to engage a compound. And I can and we also have glass cockpit like video like screens inside. So my front seater is the co-pilot gunner. He's got this compound locked up. And I said, go ahead, shoot it. He shoots it. I can see the flashes with my naked eye because it's exploding. So I can see that with my naked eye. I can see the dirt and the dust cloud with the flare. We're on the tar gun target line. And then all of a sudden, everything goes black. Everything. And the screens, the sound in my ear cups goes to nothing. There's no radios. There's no navigation. It's just black. The helicopter is still spinning. Like I, I can hear the whirring, but I have no side tone in my ear. I can't talk to anybody and it's just black. And we were diving at a target, right? So I'm like, we were level, we're fairly level when it happened. So I just, I don't do much. I take a deep breath real quick. Take all the time you need. You got one second. I take a great breath. And then I grabbed the goggles. We have night vision goggles that will clip to our helmet. I flip the helmet display unit of my way and put the goggles down they're not dependent on aircraft power to amplify the ambient light. So I put those things on and it, the blackness gives way to dark green. <laughs> and now I can 
the sea again. I can see the ground. I can see the air and keep air between us and that. And that's always a good thing when you're flying. <laughs> so I pull up. I know where the ground is, I think would be important while you're flying. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And well, there's enemy that we just were shooting at, hopefully. But basically, I break contact with the enemy. I roll towards where I think Bastion is, where our, the base we were going to land at. And because I don't have a navigation system, I'm in the lead. I roll and then I slow back a little bit. I did all that because of things that I had gone through with chair flying. So, and then my wingman pulls up alongside me. I know he's going to follow me, pulls up alongside me. I take my flashlight and I flash him. So he knows something's wrong. He knows something's wrong. He basically takes the lead a little bit. I stay right on his wing and we fly all the way back. No, no event, no event. So why do I tell that story? Because in any point in that story, it could have gone terribly wrong, right? It could. Now it's like a cool story where that happened. What happened is they shot out our generator. They hit our generator. That's what happened. Okay. And and the other generator is supposed to take up the whole load, but it didn't. <laughs> so I did come back. I surged a couple of times. And as soon as it did, I tried to like key the mic and tell somebody something, but it wasn't long enough to do it. And my co-pilot, we're separated, so I'm yelling at him, but he can't hear me. So I'm like, we're okay. I'm flying home. Whatever. But I had chair flown. Wave out the window. (laughs) So I had visualized something like losing all that stuff in the night and and what I would do. And I knew I would grab the alternate device, the goggles. I would put that down. How I would communicate. We had an SOP that I'd talk through. That would be a flashlight. I knew he he would do that. First thing first, you're going to aviate, then you're going to navigate, then you're going to communicate. So aviate, I kept the wings level. I got my goggles on. I separated Mm -hmm. us from the ground. I turned navigate, aviate, navigate, communicate, or aviate, communicate, navigate, whichever one. So I turned towards where I needed to go, navigate, and then I communicated as soon as I could with the flashlight. If you're in a to bring it home, if you're in a car driving down the free down a highway, it's just you and you got the lights on and you got the radio blast and you're talking to somebody on the phone and then all that just goes away and there was a turn ahead and you're at 65 miles an hour and let's just say that you're getting shot at too. So uh, that's an event where you could crash very easily. There's an event where we could have crashed very easily. And I'm, why didn't we is because I had walked through and visualized that those scenarios in detail, how I would control my heart rate, taking a breath, how I would compose myself, what I would do action-wise. And when you're doing the chair flying, you go, you start the emergency and you work your way. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Until you, you hit a friction point. I'm not sure what I would do here. And then you make that decision in a 1G environment that you're controlling because you got the meditation, you got your fertile garden, you're ready to go. There's no threat. You make that decision then you work through it and then you go back to start and start over and you go right through that smooth until you hit your next friction point. And then you do that same process and you keep doing that till you get from point A to point B- Z with no hiccups. And then if you want to go graduate level, then you start throwing in contingencies. Maybe this doesn't happen. This other thing happened. When I do that, this happens. Right. What if two things go wrong at the same time? What do I do right. then? Yeah. So then you hit those friction points and you hit that and you go until you get through those smoothly until you, And then the role-playing part is actually moving what you can move, talking what you can talk, speaking what you can say, really connecting those nerves and neural connections of what this action is going to be physically in a 1G environment, right? Now, how does that apply to people? How does that apply to you and me? Real simple. 
we'll go back to the relationship thing. Men and women, when they communicate things, they always communicate them perfectly. There's no issues. There's no, there's no friction. There's none of that. N- never <laughs> any misunderstandings Nothing. or miscommunications. Yeah. It's like butter. And so I do this with my current relationship and I'm not saying I have, it works hundred percent of the time, but it definitely makes it better. I will chair fly conversations, right? Often when I chair fly the conversation, I realize the conversation doesn't even need to happen, right? Cause I'll walk all the way through it and be like, well, I don't, we can just, I can just let this go. So there's the, often that's the case, but you get to your friction point. She's going to react X way more likely if I do this. If that happens, how am I going to react? How am I going to de-escalate that? How am I going to stay calm? How, walk through that whole scenario. And I notice the difference on the conversations where I do that versus the ones that I don't. Sure. But when you do it enough, I also notice that even the ones that I don't, it does bleed over. Sure. It does bleed over. And it does start to create a better there's, if, I don't know if you got the video where I got, I took around, my co-pilot took around to his leg, blew his leg up. I lost my engine and my flight controls all got jammed in the very same second. I had to deal with all of those at the same time. Not exactly the same time, but within seconds. Within a short sure. order of these events all happening at the same time. Yeah. Now, did I chair fly that exact scenario? No. Being in a bank, losing your engine, having your co-pilot's leg wrapped around the controls and the controls jamming up. No, I didn't chair fly that exact scenario. I chair flied multiple where I lost an engine, multiple where I lost an engine, maybe the controls together. Probably did that one. Loss of controls, multiple where I got wounded, he got wounded, how we're going to do that, how we're going to talk through that. And so when it happened, I still reacted. You just right. reacted it together. And, yeah. and it worked and it worked. And it was because I credit it to chair flying. But my kid teases me all the time. He's like, Dad, you're talking out loud. And I'm like, no, just chair flying something. Conversation with the boss or even just interactions or, or whatever. And what it was also doing that I didn't realize is something called stress inoculation. <laughs> so we know that I was doing it to save my skin, not crash, be prepared in the aircraft. But I was also inoculating myself to that stress by visualizing that stress i was giving myself a weakened dose of that stress and just like an inoculation with virus you put that stuff in your system when the real virus shows up he can come he can knock but he can't come in and that's the same thing with the damage or the trauma if you've i pictured blowing up people before i blew up people did it look exactly the same no but i'd already prepared my mind for that so when it cut a groove it wasn't very deep and it didn't leave that much scar tissue it's still there I still have that memory. I still don't like that memory, but it doesn't trip me up. And I think, as you said, to the wider picture here, the fact that used it in a combat situation, used it there, but even in your day-to-day life now, you continue to use it because the benefits of it far outweigh the effort of it. So there's actually a, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but there's a, a scientific research paper on something called whoop w p which is wish outcome obstacle plan the idea is i wish this would happen this is something that would keep it from happening this is the outcome i want this is the obstacle that would keep it from happening and here's my plan to do in response and it's basically just a way of visualizing in an active way this is what i want i want to have a good conversation with my girl here's an obstacle that could keep that from happening and 
and you run those hundreds of those. Put you a may whoop not on just, a loop. Yeah, you may exactly put a whoop on a loop, and they call it "whoop my life" is actually what they call it. But they did research on this. They t- changed, t- trained people how to do that. It's a version of what you're talking about. It's a little mini. Let's start going through this in our head of what. And the faint thing that they found is even if they never actually hit on the obstacle, they brainstormed a hundred obstacles, a hundred different things that could go wrong. But what actually went wrong was nowhere on that list. They responded a lot better because they'd actually already prepared their mind for thinking, oh, something's probably going to go wrong. And so they responded better. Training your mind to be a gymnast. A gymnast is a gymnast. So that's what you're training it to do. It's going to have to flip and react. It'll problem solve because it's already been trained to problem solve. Yeah, yeah that's what you're doing. You're whooping on a looping. <laughs> <laughs> no, everything I'm saying, there's nothing. This is nothing new. I'm yeah, none saying, of it's magic either, but it's applying it. That's the thing that we don't do. <laughs> it's an application process is what it is. So it, it, visualization, that's not new. Meditation, that's not new. Role play, that's not new. None of that's new. Those are things but it's just an application and it's a simple application that if you become, if it becomes a habit can absolutely not only just help you deal with di- difficult situations, but the ripple effects afterwards are minimized. And I think to call that out, I think one of the things that's powerful about like your book is because you're putting it in a situation that is so life and death <laughs> and you're talking about the benefits of it in a true life and death situation. Hopefully people will hear from that, not, oh, but I'm not in that specific situation, but rather if it'll work there, then surely it'll work over here where, you know, maybe it's just about asking my boss for a raise. Surely I can use some of these same skills for that. (laughs) That's the whole reason. Like you asked, why did I feel like I should write the book? That's why, because there's extreme situations that people will take note of. If I just said, I had a difficult conversation with my wife and this is how I got through it, right? That doesn't carry the same weight because we, because it just isn't that extreme, maybe an extreme conversation, (laughs) but it's just, it's commonplace. Whereas these are things like people, oh, I've never experienced that. I never will experience that, but it worked there. And then I then bring it back home. It it works there. Like you said, if it works there, it's going to work here. So let me ask you another question. I've got a few questions that I want to, that I like to ask all of my guests, but before I do that, is there anything else from the book that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with the listener? Oh, there's so much, but (laughs) I, I, the one thing I always just tell people is, and this is really going out to anybody who's struggling with anything right now, if they're really like, you know, just something they can apply right after listening to this. You can apply that chair flying almost immediately too. But what I, if it's depression or it's anger or it's hate or it's any of these negative feelings that we have out there, I would challenge you to really look inward and look at, look and find things to be grateful for. And the reason I say that, it sounds really cliche, grateful, okay, but gratitude and anger can't exist on the same plane. That gratitude and hate can't exist on the same plane. Depression, gratitude and depression can share space a little bit, but it will give way. It will give way. And it's just a really simple thing. 
And I was talking to a guy about this and he goes, yeah, there's always something to be grateful for. And he's right. There is, there's always something. great. And he said, he, this is what he said. And it was really a powerful thing because he said, yeah, like, even if it's just something as simple as the sun rising in the morning. And I was like, it's funny that we think that's simple because if the sun didn't rise, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. We all die. So we, there's a lot of things like that in our lives that just happen that we can be grateful for, but we're not because they just happen. So unless we take that time and really start to list things we're grateful for. And I think a great habit is be, when you wake up, three things you're grateful for. When you go to bed, three things you're grateful for that happened that day. day, right? Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't have to be three. It could be as many as you want. One activity I've had folks do is three things. For one month, every morning, write down three things you're grateful for, but you're not allowed to repeat them. Oh, it's so my son and I do this. Like we do this on the way to school. And there's a really cool story. My son is adopted and he's African-American. And it was during January when he was six, when he was six. And he said, hey, buddy, have you heard Martin Luther King? We call this, we call it our exercise grateful. We're really creative with the name. But you have, you have to say three things and why, and you can't repeat, can't repeat. So he said, have you heard of Martin Luther King? I said, I, I sure has. He said, he was a great man. He sure was. He changed the world. Yes, he did. Did you know he gave a speech? I said, I do. He's like, can I listen to it? I said, absolutely. I pulled it up while I was driving <laughs> and uh, gave it to him and he's watching it. And it was the bridge version. It wasn't the whole thing, but it was like from the hills of Tennessee. You know, and he goes, he was just, he's a six-year-old kid. He was fixated on it. He was fixated on that thing. And I love sharing this story because it really hits me. But basically gets to the end. He says, I love that speech. Can I listen to it again? <laughs> sure. We got time. Listens to it again. He goes, now can we do grateful? Yeah, we can do grateful. And I already know where he's going with this. I'm like, okay, I, I can see where he's going for going with it. And he goes, I'm grateful for Martin Luther King. That part I expected. The next part I did not. I said, so why? Because we have to do the why. And he goes, because of what he did, I can be your son. And Every time I tell that story, I get goosebumps because the six-year-old just taught me something in gratitude. He brought Martin Luther King into my heart. I was always grateful for the man as in a superficial level, but Martin Luther King's in my heart now because it's connected it much more connected the, to yeah. the reality of the situation. Gratitude. That's powerful. powerful. <laughs> That's it powerful. Is. That's powerful. And the fact that he connected those dots at six is, is amazing. Yeah. yeah my, uh, yeah. Um, sorry. I cheered up a little bit with that story. Every I'm, time I'm, getting, I'm getting my voice back because I choked up. So the, the, let me ask a couple of the questions that I like to ask everybody on that note. So the first one is I mentioned earlier, my brand is inspired stewardship. I talk a lot about stewardship. And yet that's one of those words like leadership, like gratitude, like all the things we've been talking about today. I've learned over the years that different people mean different things by it. So what does the word stewardship mean to you? And what do you think the impact of that has on your life? To me, stewardship means responsibility. It's just, it's the things that we have responsibility for. And obviously it's our choice, what we put into that basket. Like you can choose to just not take responsibility for any number of things. But once you've said, I'm taking this role, I think stewardship comes into play. And it's just, it means that you, not only is it the responsibility, but 
you can't give up on that. You owe it to see it through the end, to persevere until the end. And sometimes there is no end. So that just means persevere, right? So that's really what it means to me is just a resilient level of responsibility. So the other question, and this is my favorite question, and it gets back to the conversation we were just having about gratitude. Let's say I invented this magic machine and I was able to pluck you from where you are today and transport you into the future, maybe 150, 200 years. And through the power of this machine, you were able to look back on your entire life and see all of the connections, all of the impacts, all of the ripples that you've left behind in the world. What impact do you hope you've left in the world? That is such a really low, a big question. The number one impact that I want, I like that, that is the closest to my heart. We just talked about. I hope my son turns into the man that he can become, and I hope that part of that is because of what I told. That was like it's already working. That already happening based on the story you shared. <laughs> yeah, everything above that is gravy. Obviously the intent in this book and the intent I, we have other trainings and stuff that's coming from is to help people get through the muck and come out and realize that the muck is there to empower them. It's there. Trauma can be trauma is powerful, but it's like a lightning bolt. A lightning bolt can kill you, but it can power a city. It's where you put that power. It's how you use that power. So that is an impact that I'm working on, but that's secondary to my son. Selfishly, my son's my number one. Absolutely. So what's coming next? What's on the roadmap for the rest of 2023? I said a little bit, we ha- we are working on more in-depth tri- curriculum and also a container training where is, it's like basically a three-day boot camp that we've, it's already exists. I've been through it and I was like, and I've seen it literally flip people, people who are ready to take their lives, come out of that thing and have a new lease on life. And what I've really impressed about is there's a lot of things like that, but then people go right back, right? They go right back to the, where they were. What I've really been impressed with this particular program is that it seems to be sustainable and we're, and so I'm copycatting it with the guy that did it. So I'm partnering up with the guy that does it and we're going to make it specifically for this, at least my version is going to be specifically for very and first responder types that whether they're dealing with stuff or not, they are. So anybody really to go through it. I went through it and I wasn't really feel like I was dealing with stuff, but I still came out of there pretty with a whole new perspective. I would, I would say a bigger perspective. But when I was in there, there were guys that were there. That was their last ditch effort. They were, I'm going to do this. And if this doesn't work, I'm done. And they came out of there. And this is, this was a year, a little over a year ago. I went and I keep in, truck with some of these guys and it, it lasts it's stuck and so we're developing that for military and first responders i'm excited about that and then the other another thing that's immediately by the time you air this hopefully we're out on audiobook which was me reading it which was a pain in my butt <laughs> talking on the podcast i i love it's fun reading and not stumbling over your words and keeping the right emotion and all those kind of things and you I can tear up and there's a lot of things in that book that I could not been able to read through without having that emotion grip me. 
So it was a long process to get that audio book. And so when this airs, it should be out, I hope. You can find out more about Brian and his book over at clearedhot.info. Brian, other than the audio book and the new training coming out, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? No, just be your best self. And the perspective is always something that you can broaden. Yeah. So yeah, hit us up there or on Amazon. It's on there too, or wherever. And you can send me direct messages. I'm not out of reach. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word, iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.